welcome to the Women in ERP podcast. I'm your host, Abigail Allman, the founder of the Women in ERP platform. Joining me today is my co-host, Stephanie Poor. Stephanie is a sales manager for ERP vendor IFS and a huge advocate and champion for women working in and around ERP technology. Hi, Steph. Hi, Abby. We're joined today by Kaylee Brown. Kaylee is an independent IFS consultant. Hi, Kaylee. Hi. It's about time we've had you on the show. <laughs> I know. I've been really looking forward to coming to see you. Been really looking forward to it. It's good. It's going to be an entertaining one. So buckle in. Which <laughs> um, is a lot of fun. So first of all, let's just get straight into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to the world of ERP? Yep, so I come from a tiny little pit village on the Northumbrian coast. Um, I'm, I've been married for 10 years. I've got an 11-year-old. Um, I got into ERP as a client. So I worked for a company that implemented IFS a, a few years ago. Uh, I was seconded to the project team uh, to help implement the system sort of group-wide. And uh, from there, I got offered some work in Switzerland, and that's how I got into independent working. Ah, so you set up your own company to in order to contract, basically. That's right, yeah. And I've I've done that ever since. So that's uh, a few years ago now. Brilliant. And how do you find working in the sort of consultancy field as a woman? And how do you get your work? Um, I get my work a lot of the time it's via IFS or ArcWide now so I work directly on IFS led projects most of the time so off the back of one project I'll be positioned into another one Um, I suppose I've normally always got something lined up with IFS straight after the project I'm on so that's sort of how it's how it's worked I haven't really struggled I've been really lucky to be honest because I know a lot of people have gaps in their work or you know, have have weeks where they've only got you know one or two days, but I've I've not struggled so far. Touchwood, you're in demand. Booming marketplace out there at the minute, isn't it? But there's almost so much demand that actually, you know, that there should be a continuous stream of projects. Hopefully, which it sounds like for you there is for the good consultants, particularly. But that's positive. If I behave myself for the next few weeks, you know, <laughs> the next project lined up. <laughs> so, how do you juggle being an independent consultant and essentially a working mum? Wine, uh, mostly. And because there's a fortune in um, gaming credits. uh, But to be serious, I'm really lucky. I'm surrounded by a fantastic support network. You know, David's always been a huge supporter. He's he's done everything. He's been mum, really, for the past few years, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, family, friends help out. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky in that sense. Sometimes it's hard for Isla, the age she's at now that I'm away. Um, I think she was more or less used to it before the pandemic. Yeah. And then having me around all of the time sort of flipped it on its head a little bit. And she struggles a bit more with it now. But I think because she's 11, she's getting to that age where, you know, you need your mum for certain things. And yeah. uh, but I, I, I do juggle it and um, it just means that on a weekend uh, we'll try and have as much fun as possible. That's it. Work hard, play even harder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've also got a fair few pets. <laughs> this is how we sort of got talking. <laughs> Why have you got so many? Because <laughs> I can't say no. I've got a problem with saying no. Um, yeah, I've got um, a dog, two cats, 
um, a huge fish tank full of fish, um, and I've got 30 plus birds in an aviary. Um, what? That's cool. That's, I wasn't expecting that bit. I was like, dog, cat, 30 birds. <laughs> it's a bit of a menagerie, to be fair. It's easy because cats don't want your time, They're, they just want your food. The dog uh, make it up to him by taking him camping in the van. So he's uh, he he loves being when, when I'm away. He loves being with his grandma and granddad. So he goes there through the week sometimes and gets plenty of walks and treats. And so nobody really suffers. <laughs> <laughs> so leading on to the van then that you're in right now, you're away from home a lot, and this is how you spend your time at the office. You stay in your van. So do you want to tell us a little bit about? Being away from home and why you choose to to stay in the van? Yeah, sometimes I do stay in hotels um, if I if I have to. Um, I prefer to be in the van. I find that it's a home from home. It's got everything I need, um, and it's not as though I'm sort of wild camping at the sides of roads and things like that. Which I think that's the first thing that comes into people's heads. Like, well, it's just like in a motorway lane somewhere camping out. No, I go to nice sites where you've got really good. Uh, facilities sometimes they've got spas even it just means when I finish work I can go into a space that's mine and it's personal and I can go for walks I you know I get out in nature and if it's raining I've got Netflix on my telly so it's not bad at all I love that it's kind of it's your home from home like you say because it's it is hard when you're on the road the whole time and you're kind of you know you're going from one hotel to the next and to begin with you're like oh this is cool and then by the end you're just like I'm just done with this oh yeah Whereas you have that familiar surrounding that actually it keeps that consistency, if that makes sense. I think that's such a good idea. Yeah, the novelty of hotels quickly wears off. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I am a sociable person, but sometimes I just think, you know, you're in hotels, you're limited as to what you can get in restaurants to eat. And you're sort of making small talk with people, just you know, it's sort of unnatural for me. I would much rather have my own personal space. I do like the hotels every now and again, and if it's really, really cold, I'm a bit of a wuss, uh, and I will revert back to the hotel, but oh, I do enjoy it. Yeah, it looks like a very fancy van, though, in fairness. I'm sure you've got all the modicons. It's not bad, it's got a microwave, it's got a fridge. The fridge, incidentally, fits a full crate of Moretti very nicely. It's a bit of a you know that. Yeah, like it's like a, a Tetris situation going on, it fits perfectly. So little uh known fact there, but yeah, it's uh it's fancy, it's lovely. It's I'm really lucky to have it to be fair. And it's red and black, we're Man United fans, and it goes with everything that's in the house. So <laughs> so how do you keep safe on campsites? I mean, as a woman going out into the remote locations where you might be, you know. Truckers and all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scarier than the truckers, believe me. <laughs> you know, safety comes first. I'm um, in a lot of groups on Facebook with like-minded women who do the same thing. Um, there's there's always a risk. Um, I think as a woman, it's a different experience when you camp on your own and you're on the site. There's ways and means you can sort of protect yourself. I guess it's just anytime you sort of need advice, I've got that that group to refer to, you know, and just making sure that, you know, your, your doors are locked. You're not just sort of leaving things open. And I, I do talk to strangers, but I am probably the scariest stranger on those campsites. So <laughs> all's good. Brilliant. And you think the home from home, so what sort of touches do you have in the van that sort of make you feel at home and 
and that kind of thing. What do you bring with you? Ah, oh, God, good question. Um, so I've always got, a, <laughs> it's a bit of a, a trend with campervan folk to have uh, a coat that's like, how do you describe it? It's called a dry robe and it's a fleecy coat that's waterproof on the outside. And uh, it's the best thing since sliced bread, you know, it keeps you dry, it keeps you cosy. So I like to be comfortable. I've also got Star Wars bedding, so that's a, a nice touch that I <laughs> added. But I've got my little TV. I, I always bring sort of um, books that, and I've always got certain things I like to watch, but I always bring my trainers so I can go for a walk. Uh, as well so it, it's all about personal touches I, I do sort of like to bring my nicest pajamas and my fluffy socks and things like that so it's just sort of keeping it like you say home from home and do you find that um being in a van makes you get out more in nature after you've finished a shift at work and, and you're home do you get out and walk a lot and explore the areas that you're in yeah I tend to look for sites that are close to either um nature reserves or country parks places where you can just go out and have a, a wander around and I'm currently working near Glasgow so I'm really lucky that there's a lot of nice locks yeah. um you can sort of park up and go for a wander but it does encourage you to get out more I think purely because you're in such a small space to just go back as if you would sit in a hotel room you've got more space but it's boring being in a smaller space encourages you to actually either you know sit outside or go for a walk um and another thing that people sort of who stay in the vans do is the join a gym and use their facilities as well so there's a, a chain of gyms that I joined that you can just sort of go wherever you are in the country and I'll often do that just because then you've got you know the nice showers and things you can get a workout in sometimes I do shake the exercise side I'm not gonna lie I find you in the hot tub yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it it sounds so idyllic it really does I also love that there's a whole community of women that you're all, like talking to because it, it's actually so obvious when you think about it, but it's just a world I don't know. So it's like, oh yeah, you've kind of all got each other's backs. I love it. It's cracking because there's a whole raft of women out there who, you know, dress up in their suits through the day and then getting their joggers and their hiking boots on at night time. And that's exactly me. I'm, I love it. That's who I am. <laughs> Great. Going back to work then, one of the things that we spoke about were sort of conflicts of work and challenges that you face throughout your career. So have you encountered any friction in the workplace? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think just nature of projects is that they can be stressful when the chips are down. You know, there's a, a lot riding on the success of projects and it's so easy for people to get stressed out, um, to burn out even. And that does cause conflict, um, especially on projects where, you know, it's getting close to the wire and, it, and it's a, a tricky time. It, it's so easily done. And you've just got to try and sort of stay professional when that's going on. Yeah. But it's about being resilient. You know, I've been in projects where people have struggled with the, the workload and getting the balance right. Um, and that's really typical of projects. Yeah. So I have seen conflict um, and it's it's not uncommon, I think, in projects. It's not. And, and some of us, me included, let our emotions get the better of us sometimes. And how do you handle this sort of when you're in a male dominant environment? So I think the, the whole thing about resilience, I'm not a naturally resilient person. Um, and I think often when you 
receive criticism and it's done in what can come across in a male-led industry as being a bit patriarchal and a little bit sort of in your face I think you've got to just assume that most people are acting with the best intentions and that um you know the, the feedback's necessary as long as it's done right I think resilience and emotion it's about you know you take pride in your work pride's associated with emotion um, and when somebody or you feel like somebody's attacking that, it is easy to sort of get emotional about it and feel like you're getting upset about it. It's not always a reaction you want to have because it's not useful to the situation. Um, the way that I've dealt with it in the past is by contacting, um, I've got a mentor. I'm really lucky actually to have a mentor who I talk to whenever I face a new situation. I don't know quite how to deal with it. Just a little shout out. It's uh, Sid Niven. Um, he runs uh, the Northern Growth Academy. I met him through my qualifications a few years ago. And I go back to him quite often on situations where, you know, I want to learn how to deal with things in a professional, but in, in a way that protects myself mentally as well. Yeah. Um, Sid introduced me to Havenin actually. So Havenin as a therapy, um, it helps you to deal with a traumatic situation, but gives you the tools to be able to deal with the same situation again. And it's to do with touch and, and feel. So, you know, if you're in a tricky situation, once you've completed this therapy, even just sort of, you know, gently rubbing your hands together and touching your face, that sort of thing, it's all connected. There's loads of um, studies on it. It's it's amazing. Um, but it just gives you sort of a relaxed feeling that allows you to take the emotion out of the situation and just deal with it properly. Yeah. So it's a bit, is it a bit sort of hypnotism or how do they do that? It's, it has been associated with hypnotism, but it's more of a, there's an actual physical change that happens. So I'm not great at explaining it, but I try and sort of follow the way that, that Sid taught me is that there's parts of your brain and you're in the amygdala part of your brain that when you've felt trauma and you've gone through something that's affected you mentally, the surface changes. So if you feel like, you know, you've got a flat surface, nothing's happened. The minute you go through a traumatic situation the surface starts to change and, and the way Sid described it is that if you imagine tiny little sort of fingers on the surface what Havenin does is it's it's the smoothing of that surface so that if you go through something that is similar to that situation again it's not going to bring forward those feelings that made you feel emotional and upset it's just kind of restructuring that surface so that it's a clean slate yeah, more or less, and you're better prepared then to deal with the situation again. It's amazing, and I would encourage anybody to look it up, um, and even look it up. You know, it, it's helped me massively, and I know it's helped some of my friends as well. And in particular, you know, things like phobias. So that's why I think it's associated a bit with hypnotism, is that people use it for phobias, and it's incredible actually how it works. Yeah. I'm a total psychology nerd, though I'm I'm really into behaviour and psychology. That's one of my uh, my sort of personal interests. So all that stuff really sort of it, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's always good to have useful tools when in that sort of hotbed environment. But it is kind of like that, isn't it? It's a uh, but it's quite touchy. It does get like that, yeah. And I mean, one of my habits that I've got is when I start a new project, I spend time building personal relationships with the people that I'm working with so that in those situations, I find it easier to deal with then because 
I know how to get onto that person's level and speak to them in a language that they're going to hear and actually sort of reduce that bit of stress. I read up on things like transactional analysis, which is understanding why people act the way that they do um, in terms of conversation backwards and forwards. And I think it just understanding behavior helps my resilience because it not justifies people's behaviors, but it helps me to understand why people act the way that they do, especially in high pressure situations. Yeah, yeah, and allows you to, I guess, rationalise it and break it down and, and work with it, ultimately. It does, and I mean, once you've got a personal relationship with somebody who you're working with, it's easier to go, hey, pack it in, behave yourself, you know, come on, and, and be a bit cheeky. I once actually had somebody ask um, how I say the same things as them, but I get away with it. And I joke that it's the Geordie accent, you know, you can get away with murder if you speak in a Geordie accent. <laughs> but it's actually it's nothing to do with the accent really it's just the fact that if somebody's got confidence and, and trust in you that it's easier to, to speak taking the time to get to know that is so important relationships are so important just yeah. understanding how people tick absolutely so what would you say makes a good project team what personality traits or characteristics would make a good project team in your opinion i tend to, to gravitate towards people who are open and honest foremost I think there's nothing that grounds a project quicker than hiding things and and not being open about the situation if you need help and asking for it so people who aren't shy to ask there's a Geordie phrase that I love saying it because everybody's confused by it but it's shy Ben's getting out say that again shy shy Ben's getting out shy Ben's getting out yeah so your Geordie listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's, it, the gist of it is that shy children get nothing. So if you don't ask, you don't get. I think confidence is important on a project to have your voice and, and say what you really sort of think and need and feel on a project. And I just think as well, having a little bit of humour there helps being human. You know, yeah. um, we're all humans on a project. I think often we forget that we're not actually machines. We're implementing systems, but we're not a system. So just being a human, basically, I think... Um, do you think having a good leader or project manager is important? And what characteristic traits in a leader is a benefit? I think leaders who show you trust and give you a bit of autonomy. I always work better with project managers who let me do things my way. I think micromanagement is one of the first things to kill a good vibe in a project. I think just trust and people who support you and you know that if there's something that you need to talk about, you can just go and talk to them without the feeling of being sort of criticised or having backlash. I think just genuinely nice people. I've I've dealt with some fantastic project managers in the past few years um, and the, the good ones tend to be personable people, really genuinely nice people. It's so interesting to talk to you about this. A lot of the work that I've done in the past has been around you know, putting project teams together. And sometimes it's about who's cheap and who's available and, you know, and just ticking the boxes of who they need. And actually, when you think about it, that doesn't make a team. It's really hard to get that that vibe, I guess, to make that project successful. And, and I guess that's where lots of problems stem from. So how can an organisation ensure that they're getting people that work well together? Again, I'm a big fan of psychometric testing and, and the psychology behind how a team ticks. And I think, have you heard of um, Myers-Briggs? Yeah. And the 16 personalities. So 
that for me in the past has helped me to pull teams together where you, you know you've got one of each type of person in a team yeah um and you haven't got a, a whole load of leaders that are just going to clash you know I think it's got to be a, a good balance of people who can manage and lead and people who can actually you know get together and get the job done I think it's more to do with personality and less to do with skill yeah in my in my opinion I think skills obviously important especially on ARP projects because you know it would be daft to take someone who's never touched a computer before and put them in a developer role you know what I mean they've got to have the skill there I mean some developers uh that I've worked with you <laughs> you'd think they hadn't touched a computer but I think it's more to do with it's more to do with how people gel for me that's more important than actually having the top person for this thing I think Mm -hmm. you can be incredible at your job and still be an arse you know so it's where diversity comes in doesn't it in terms of you know whether that's women or different uh, ethnicities or whatever I think it's just so important If, if everyone's the same it's just you get the clashes like you say and it's just bit dull if more than anything like yeah we spend so much time working like we've got to be in an environment that's you know welcoming nurturing you know challenging in certain ways so yeah I I completely agree with you and how do you ensure a successful handover then when a project's finished is a project ever finished (laughs) I was just about to I was on the tip of my tongue For me, it's about ownership, client ownership, and them actually accepting the solution as their own. And they've made their decisions with guidance, but it's theirs. It's their baby. And I think um, just just understanding how to firefight even thereafter. So, you know, you always you go live and you find things. I think a lot of people feel as though they should go live with a project and that everything will be perfect. And how often is that the case? It's given them the tools to be able to fight fires afterwards for the first few weeks, I would say. Yeah. Um, rather than giving them what looks like a perfect solution, you're always going to find things because you can't test everything. Um, and I find myself saying that quite a lot. I'm working as a test manager at the moment and it's human nature to think we must test every single variation on a scenario. You'll never test everything. Otherwise, your projects would last 20 years, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think definitely ownership, but more so giving them the tools to be able to deal and cope and just keeping it positive as well. I mean, you've got to pick people who are going to go out into the business after you've gone live and actually be the, the cheerleader for that solution. It's making sure that when you hand over, you're handing over to people who are, are actually really positive about the product. Yeah, and capable. So to anyone that's considering becoming an independent consultant, what advice would you give them? Buy a van. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, I would put shares in a van company. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, build up your resilience because being independent isn't always easy. It's nice to have the freedom that comes with being an independent contractor. But actually, you are on your own for a lot of it. And you've got to make the decisions that are right for your own business. And it's sometimes easier to strike up a balance, a work-life balance when you're working for yourself, but you don't actually switch off when it's your business. So it's just making sure that you're resilient enough to be able to sort of deal with, you know, family as well as uh, making sure that the business does what it needs to do and functions properly. That does boil down for me, the resilience again. 
And do you think that work-life balance is ever really achievable? Um, I think work-life balance means something different to everybody. For me, it means, yeah, I'm away quite a lot and work long hours, but actually I go on holidays that are like amazing. We've just come back from Florida. That That's my balance. Yeah. And I think some people do struggle with that. I would say people who are struggling with balance to really just stop and take stock of where you're at, maybe make some lists, you know, of, of how you would prefer things to be and then make it happen. I think balance is never, it's never going to be like that. It's always going to be slightly one way or the other, mm-hmm. uh, as long as it's not that, so as long as it's not a huge gap and tipping one way, you know, really heavily, I think. Some days you have good balance and some some days you really don't, but you've got to take the rough with the smooth when you're when you're independent. Um, probably just as much as you, you you would if you were you were employed, you know. Yeah, true. You're a very positive person, which is lovely, and you laugh a hell of a lot <laughs> and you find humor in everything. Do you think that sort of positive mindset has been pivotal in your making a career and, and being as successful as you have been? I think it has because I think if you can see light in a situation, you're not often sort of bogged down by things. I, I have got a bit of a cheeky sense of humour and um, it's been noted a few times, but I'm literally just the most sarcastic person on the planet. So it works well with some people and not so much with others. But I do think having a sense of humour and laughing about things just in general, if you can't laugh at yourself sometimes, I think it, it just makes things a whole lot harder. Um, I'm constantly messing something up and laughing at myself for it. You know, it's just part and parcel of life. I think just can't take life too seriously. You, you know, yeah. It's uh, I think it's been the way I've been brought up as well. Though I've been brought up around some very strong female characters. Yeah. And in our family, if you can't take a mocking, then you're in trouble. You know, it's like a comedy roast every time my family gets together. So. I can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, you've got to laugh at life because none of us know if what we're doing is right or wrong, you know. Do you know what? Like, I had one situation where um, I know lockdown was just so tough for people and that was a tricky one for finding the humour. But I was in a a remote test during lockdown and it was a really sort of tense few minutes uh something had gone completely wrong in the test and it was a panic stations there was silence and and it was just a really awkward situation to be in especially that we're all behind screens you know and no sooner had the tension hit sort of peak when Isla flung the door open and announced really really loudly that the dog had kicked poo on a jumper and the whole test just burst out laughing. Everybody was in stitches. And then because everybody had just sort of gone and deflated a little bit, we managed to get through it and we got it all sorted. But I think it was just in that moment, everybody was like, oh, really tense. Yeah. And then because this child had walked in and announced that, yeah, the dog should have been playing with the dog in the garden and um, was now covered in muck. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. So much humour in them. It was great. <laughs> no, that was a lovely conversation. And I think we can all take so much from that in terms of being positive, even on really trying and testing days, which I think we've had a few of them recently. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Kaylee. 
You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. And uh, I hope to catch up with you um, at some point soon. Time yeah. to get again and have, uh, have some drinks or something. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Kayleigh.